Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 7, Episode 5. My name is Rick. I'm author of the recently released book, The Suicide Solution, co-authored with Dr. Daniel Amina, psychiatrist uh, who's clinical director with Amen Clinics. The book is about, well, anxiety, depression, and suicidality and how Jesus enters into that dark reality, which so many in our country are experiencing right now, and to bring wholeness and healing and restoration. That's what the book's all about. So it lays a foundation for um, brain health, emotional health. And then the last two thirds of the book is really a host, a menu of possibilities for uh inviting more wholeness into your life, all mapped to the way that Jesus interacted with people and helped to bring freedom to their captivity. So that's a suicide solution. Many of you already know and already have a copy of the Jesus Center Daily, my daily devotional, which came out about a year ago, a little over a year ago. Uh, If you're looking for a way to just connect with Jesus on an everyday way, in a surprising way, a way that involves all of your senses, well... (laughs) Jesus Center Daily, that, that's it for you. So it's easily found on Amazon. Just search for Jesus Center Daily. I'd love it if you'd pick up a copy and even pick up more than one copy and think about giving one as a gift to a friend or a family member or someone you know who is hungering to grow. So this is the second episode in a new focus I'm calling The Ways of Jesus. We'll be pursuing the heart of Jesus by taking a deeper dive into the way he lived in the way he loved others. Really, what it means to follow Jesus is the same thing it meant to be a Talmud following a rabbi. It meant that you left all of your previous connections behind and went to go live with that rabbi. And the purpose of that was to uh, relationally immerse yourself in that rabbi's presence so that all of the ways that that rabbi thought and felt and um, lived their life would sort of infect you. That's what happens when you live closely with someone. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. He's inviting us into that kind of immersive relationship. So we're going to explore the ways of Jesus, which is really just another way of getting close to him. So um, I think I mentioned uh, in the last podcast episode, which I know these are coming with less frequency now. So I'm sorry about that. Uh, I'm still trying to work out uh, kind of the ins and outs of a challenging new role that I have as executive director of Vibrant Faith. And, and I'm traveling uh, a bit more than I have in the past. And so I'm trying to fit in recording these uh, when I can. But my hope is to be more frequent than every three weeks. So just so you know. But about five weeks ago, um, my dad, who had been in failing health and in an assisted living place, um, suddenly on the, on a weekend it took a drastic turn for the worse when he was at the hospital being treated for pneumonia and i was set to bring him home he was uh, getting better um better enough to come home but all of a sudden something happened with his blood pressure and it turned out to be uh, still an unknown source of internal bleeding but it ended up um progressing quickly And the hospital told my sister and I um, to get to the hospital as soon as possible. And we were in his room for just five minutes before he passed away. So um, after after this, my sister, who uh, has a power of attorney for both my mom and my dad, and so she's been very much involved in their affairs for a long time, um, she and my brother-in-law uh, decided to design an engraving for the wooden box that would hold my dad's ashes. And that engraving kind of looked like a headstone. Um, and I was just reminded of the, the communication technique of headstones. I guess you could call it headstoning, but it 
it means that you have to communicate uh, something about the person's life in a very short amount of space. So most headstones, and and in this case, the engraving for this wooden box, um, they start out very simply, he, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and then you you try to fill in the short a short narrative of my dad's life in this case. Um, so uh, like I said, you don't have much space. And in fact, for most headstones, you have 15 words or less. Um, could be even shorter than that. So if you think about condensing your life down into 15 words or less, what would, what would the things that you'd put on your headstone be? I mean, for most <laughs> normal headstones, the ones that don't make the news, for instance, um, you just list their family connections and some short things about who they are. Like, my dad loved to be outdoors. Uh, my dad loved to fish. Um, my dad loved to carve. Uh, he was a woodworker. Um, my dad was a, a, a kind of a social guy. He spent his whole life as a, as a salesman and he loved to talk to people. These are just uh, snippets that stick out from who he is. Most headstones don't include negative stuff. <laughs> and if, like I said, if they do, then they probably make the news. Um, but those highlights that you put on your headstone, they can also be uh, reference points for your own self-narrative. The story we tell about ourselves um, to others that helps us to understand who we are and helps them to understand who we are and what we do. Now, our self-narrative is shaped and formed by very powerful internal and external forces. The story we tell about ourselves has been shaped by things. Um, it's shaped by uh, accomplishments. It's shaped by joy. It's shaped by trauma. It's shaped by challenge and disappointment. Um, it's shaped by our childhood. It's shaped by how we responded to our childhood and our adulthood. It's shaped by the people that are closest around us and the kind of mirror feedback they give to us. All of these forces are very powerful, and they all contribute to a narrative that helps us to make sense of our own identity. And often those narratives, those self-narratives, are polluted or poisoned with toxicity. Uh, the story still makes sense to us, but the story that makes sense to us is a destructive story. This is what often leads to depression and suicidality is a self-narrative that makes our own identity the villain of our story. Um, there's something intrinsically wrong or warped or twisted about ourselves. That's a destructive self-narrative. And other things um, like your health, your neighborhood, your school, your career, things like that can also feed in to forming that self-narrative. So really, if you step back from what life really looks like for us, we have two stories that are vying to form our identity. The story the world is telling us, and by the world, I mean all of those forces I just mentioned. The story that all those forming forces, uh, there's, there's one story that they're telling us. And then there's the story Jesus is telling us about ourselves. And for most of us, uh, the story Jesus is trying to tell in our lives we often uh, pay lip surface to that story. It's almost like um, when you tell your son or daughter something true and good about them, uh, or you say you know, something to your son or daughter about um, what a wonderful magnetic person that they are, and they say something back like, well, you have to say that because you're my parent. It's not really legitimate because it's expected that you would say that about me. Um, if you're a parent, you've for sure experienced this dynamic. And we have a similar dynamic with Jesus. He's trying to tell a story in us, and we often just don't believe that story. Um, we think, well, Jesus has to tell a story like that about me because, well, he's Jesus after all. But... Um, 
I thought, I thought it would be important for us to think about and sink into the forming forces that were around Jesus, all those mirrored voices around him that were trying to form him, and to pay better attention to what he did about those forming forces around him. So let me read to you a little something uh, I call the, the, the uh, forming forces directed at Yeshua. And this is a, a little bit of an expanded expansion on uh, something I wrote in the Jesus Center Daily. So I just want you to think about, in, as I read this, think about this uh, little boy named Yeshua as if you didn't know Jesus, and especially as if you didn't know he was the Messiah, because we backload all of this expectation onto Jesus simply because we think nothing bothered him, nothing affected him, nothing formed him apart from his father. Uh, we think he was impervious to everything. Well, I want you to think about what I'm about to tell you as if you didn't know all that, that this is just a little boy named Yeshua. And what kind of force would be brought to bear on this little boy, Yeshua, if these are the things that happened to him? So think about this for a second. Here are the forming forces, the mirrors that surrounded Jesus as he grew up. When he was old enough to understand, this little boy's Jewish parents told him the strange story of his birth and how a repressive occupying regime led by a paranoid madman had targeted him for execution while he was still a toddler. The madman's advisors warned him of the threat this little boy represented to his future power. So that ruler ordered the extermination of all boys under the age of two, the execution of all boys under the age of two. Well, the boy's family grabbed what they could and raced to flee the wave of violence before it washed over them. Many, however, did not escape. And dozens of innocent children were ripped from their parents' arms and murdered right in front of them. So this boy's birthday story also included shocking, gruesome, even you know, traumatic details or events that surrounded that birthday story. And so that little boy grew up in Egypt, a refugee in a foreign land where his parents had to scratch and sacrifice just to scrape by. They were always second-class citizens, as refugees are typically are. And they were that meant that they were systematically denigrated and disregarded in that culture. But eventually, after the madman's death, the family risked everything to return to their hometown. And when they returned, they saw neighbors and friends who lost their little boys to the purge. And how, do, how would they know whether or not those neighbors and friends knew that their own little boy had been the target of all that in the first place. Tension over his impact and identity was often thick, even in his own family. He was, he was not like the other boys in town. <laughs> Some were drawn to him. Others were frankly repelled by him, and that included his own brothers. Later, after he'd taken over his father's uh, stonemasonry business, and was well established in the community, he decided to leave all of that behind and take to the road as an itinerant minister, living only off the generosity of strangers and gathering a few followers along the way. He spoke and acted with authority, and that evoked both awe and withering abuse. His critics kept up a perpetual stream of the latter of those things, a determined assault on his identity using weaponized lies in an attempt to plant destructive bugs in his soul's operating system. So here are some of the things that Jesus heard. It's just a little sampler. This is, this is some of the messages he heard about who he was um, in the three years of his ministry. You're a lawbreaker. You're a glory hound. You get your power from Satan. You must perform to prove your worth. You're a blasphemer. You're disrespectful. You must conform to our expectations. And who do you think you are? All of these and many, many more were the mirrors 
attempting to form the identity of Jesus. These assaults and these traumas are obviously powerful enough to undermine and destabilize any normal person's identity. These mirrors that reflected back how others were experiencing Jesus, along with his own dark backstory, had the power to drive him in a dark cave of despair if he had been a normal person. But again, Jesus is fully man, fully God. We like to diminish the fully man part of that and uh, magnify the fully God part of that. We expect that Jesus wasn't impacted by these powerful forces all around him, that these, these identifying statements about him had no impact on his identity. But of course, he's fully man. That means that we know from scripture that Jesus experienced all of the challenges that all human beings experience. Um, that's part of the reason why the incarnation happened, so that Jesus could fully experience our human experience. So these things definitely had um, a challenging influence on, on Jesus. Uh, so that under normal circumstances, what, what would Jesus' headstone narrative be? I mean, if this was the story of a normal Jewish boy growing up, not Jesus, what would his headstone narrative be? Um, I asked our, uh, our group, that, a group of young adults who meet in our home to uh, take on that challenge. Uh, what would Jesus' self-narrative be if we didn't know he was Jesus? <laughs> here's, here's, what, here's what they said. They worked in little teams. So let me give you four different headstone narratives for, for um, what would have normally been the self-narrative of Jesus. He was born into trouble. His parents named him Trouble, and he couldn't keep his nose out of trouble. <laughs> Here's a second one. I'm a black hole. Everywhere I go, there is pain and resistance. I hope I'm God or crap. <laughs> There's number two. The third headstone narrative could have been, he formed his own path, conformed to no one, a magnet that attracted, but mostly repelled. And finally, the fourth one, a troubled man who couldn't avoid the tragedy of his birth and life. Now imagine that if, if any of these four headstone narratives have been um, our actual experience of Jesus. Of course, our actual experience of Jesus is nothing like these things. Although that last one, a magnet for many, but repelled most people. Um, that's probably a way that we experience him um, even now. So uh, the point here is that Jesus did not live out the sort of self-narrative we would expect from someone who'd experienced these kinds of forming influences. It's just another indicator of his true nature as the son of God. That means that his true nature was anchored in in um, his father's own opinion of him. It's interesting that the only two times in the New Testament we hear the audible voice of God, it's a booming voice from the heavens that essentially says, this is my son, and I'm really proud of him. <laughs> that it's the voice of God mirroring back a forming description of his son. I am really proud of him. Um, so uh, the fact that Jesus... Uh, does not match the expected headstone narrative that we'd have for someone experiencing all that he did, uh, turns us once again to want to worship him because there's something differentiated about Jesus that did not allow these kinds of forces to be the primary way uh, that he understood who he is. Um, so uh, Jesus's mission in our lives is similar to the way he lived his life to challenge and to reform and release us into the freedom of our true narrative. And there is nothing more powerful for a human being than to be released into your true narrative. It means that your calling, your purpose, your role in life, it's all fluid and enmeshed together. Um, 
you are living in a congruent way according to the truth about who you are at your depth. That is the, is the freest form of freedom, um, and it is our freedom from captivity. Jesus wants to tell us a better story about who we really are. And in doing that, he, he wants to help us walk in his ways. So the way of Jesus was to walk in his true identity. And this is what he wants for us as well. So the, the tools in his toolbox to do this big job are all invitational, by the way. Everything in the kingdom of God is invitational. God never forces himself on anyone. It's all by invitation. That means that he has placed himself in dependency on our own response to that invitation. He cannot and will not force us into the identity that uh, is most truthful about who we are. He can only invite. And over the next uh, you know, few weeks, uh, few, few podcasts, we'll explore some of these invitational tools, these ways of Jesus. Um, these three things we're going to explore, starting with this first one today about agency, um, are all in my, uh, my book, The Suicide Solution, in a chapter on um, reclaiming our self-narrative. So I thought it would be interesting to uh, uh, immerse ourselves in the ways of Jesus relative to his primary mission of freeing us from captivity, and that captivity is our destructive self-narrative. So the, the first step that we have to take along this path is to drag into the light the narrative we tell ourselves right now or the narratives we like to hide from others. So in the book, Suicide Solution, Daniel, Amina, and I map out what, we're, what are called maladaptive schemas. There's 18 of them, um, first put, put together by a Canadian psychiatrist um, uh, about a decade or so ago. And uh, these maladaptive schemas are personal storylines that emerge from what you might call necessary but twisted responses to our tr trauma in childhood, primarily. So formally, uh, here's, here's the definition of them. Here's the formal definition of what a maladaptive schema is. It's a broad, pervasive theme regarding oneself and one's relationship with others, developed during childhood and elaborated throughout one's lifetime and dysfunctional to a significant degree. So I'm just going to go through these 18 maladaptive schemas just to give you a, 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 as quick an overview as I can. And as I do, I want you to mentally mark which of these that you think might actually apply to you. Which of these schemas have you adopted on some level as uh, a way of uh, telling your own story, telling your own self-narrative? So number one is emotional deprivation a default expectation that your desire for normal emotional support won't be adequately met by others. And that can happen through an absence of attention and affection and warmth or companionship, when, especially when you were young, or an absence of understanding or listening or self-disclosure or mutual sharing of feelings from others. Or it could happen because you were deprived of protection when you were young. There's no strength and guidance from others. Number two is abandonment, a perception that those whose role is to support us and offer us intimate connection are unstable and unreliable. It's the sense that our significant others will not be able to continue providing emotional support or connection or strength or practical protection because they're emotionally unstable and unpredictable. Number three is mistrust, the expectation that Others will hurt and abuse and humiliate and cheat and lie, manipulate, or just simply take advantage of us. Mistrust. Number four is social isolation or alienation. It's just a pervading sense that we're isolated from the rest of the world. We're different from others, not welcomed into any group member, not welcomed as a member of any group or community. Number five is defectiveness or shame. A feeling that there's something foundationally defective or bad or unwanted or inferior or invalid about us, or that we'd be unlovable to significant others if they really saw the truth about us. Number six is failure, a belief that we've already failed or are sure to fail or are fundamentally inadequate in comparison to our peers' achievements. Number seven is incompetence or dependence, 
a sense that we're unable to competently handle our everyday responsibilities without a great deal of help for up from others. Number eight is vulnerability to harm or illness. An exaggerated fear that a catastrophe will strike at any time and will be unable to prevent it. Number nine is enmeshment, which is a pattern of excessive emotional attachment and overfunctioning with one or more significant others at the expense of our distinct identity or our normal social development. Number 10 is subjugation. It's an excessive surrendering of control to others because we feel coerced into it, usually to avoid anger, retaliation, or abandonment. Number 11 is self-sacrifice. It's an extreme focus on voluntarily meeting the needs of others in daily situations at the expense of our own gratification. Number 12 is emotional inhibition, over-controlling our spontaneous actions, feelings, or communications. Usually we do this to avoid others' disapproval or feelings of shame or the fear that we might like lose control of our impulses, for instance. Number 13 is unrelenting standards an underlying belief that we must strive to meet very high internalized standards of behavior and performance. Usually we do this to avoid criticism. This is, this is typically what fuels perfectionism, for instance. Number 14 is entitlement and superiority. It's a belief that we're superior to other people and therefore entitled to special rights and privileges. We're not bound by the rules of reciprocity that guide normal social interactions. Number 15 is insufficient self-control and self-discipline. It's a pervasive resistance to exercising self-control and, and to tolerate frustration in pursuit of our goals or to restrain excessive emotions and impulses. Number 16 is admiration and recognition seeking. It's an overemphasis on gaining approval, recognition, or attention from other people. Number 17 is pessimism and worry, a pervasive lifelong focus on the negative aspects of life, things like pain and death and loss and disappointment and conflict and unsolved problems and resentments. And it, it, all of this happening while minimizing or neglecting the positive or optimistic aspects of life. And number 18 is self-punitiveness. It's a belief that we should be harshly punished for making mistakes. Those who exhibit this schema tend to be very angry, intolerant, punitive, and impatient with others including themselves, who do not meet their expectations or standards. So there's all 18 of the general maladaptive schemas. So that, that is a, a mother load, isn't it? And it's hard to, it's hard to move through those, isn't it? Um, it's hard to listen to these descriptions and realize that some of these things apply to us. And almost everyone who looks at a listing of maladaptive schemas finds themselves in several, maybe even half of these schemas. It's not unusual um, to find yourself in these. And that's what makes it hard to, to even um, get your mind around it. Um, that we don't like uh, having to admit that something in us is maladaptive. And yet it's obvious that there is. So, uh, it's interesting if you if you think about all of these maladaptive schemas, you probably thought of examples right off the bat of uh, ways in which um, this shows up in your life. Um, you know, I, uh, I know that for me, I'll just pick one of these out. Um, Self-sacrifice is one of my maladaptive schemas. I grew up in a narcissistic home. And that meant that um, I didn't know it at the time when I was a kid, but it meant that I was essentially invisible to my parents. They saw me as a, a means to um, a means to an end in their life. Everything was really about them um, in the end. And I didn't realize that that's the system I grew up in, of course, because I was a kid. Um, but as a result of that, um, uh, I developed a way of proving to myself that I mattered to others by uh, trying to meet their needs, uh, being highly hyper-conscious of what other people needed and trying to meet those needs for them and an attempt to get the kind of attention and the kind of um, 
the kind of response that I didn't get as a kid growing up. So there's one of mine. It's very easy for me to see it in, in my life. So um, in, in uh, the suicide solution, uh, Daniel and I spotlight these three ways that Jesus brings healing and health, health to these schemas, or that you might call them poisoned self-narratives. And the first one that we cover in the book is called reasserting control over your story. It means simply that we exercise agency over our story. So researchers tell us that a strong factor that feeds resilience in, in human beings is the degree of control that that person has over the stressor. So episodes of early uncontrollable stress can lead to learned helplessness where a person is conditioned to believe that they're unable to change the circumstances of their situation, that leads to heightened anxiety states and fear responses. Um, so our resilience, let me just backtrack here, our resilience is really tied to the level that we believe we have control over the thing that is challenging us or stressing us. And people have had that compromised in their life have a very difficult time being resilient when we can't exert any control over the trauma we've experienced. And most traumas that children experience, they have no control over, for instance. So when that happens, the agency that fuels our hope is really obliterated. So put this another way, painful experiences that are inescapable and erratic can cut our soul's tendons it makes it difficult to use or strengthen the muscles we need to face and overcome future challenges and future pain. The healing we need is directly tied to our ability to reassert control over our story, agency over our story, to reattach those cut tendons and rehabilitate the agency that we need for our own resilience. And Jesus intends to reattach those cut tendons. Um, he didn't stop the tendons from being cut in the first place. We live in a broken world. It's going to happen. But what he does do is bring freedom into that captivity by bringing us healing. thought it'd be interesting for us to see exactly how he does that by paying better attention to his most well-known parable, the parable of the lost son in Luke 15. This is a story really designed to, to surface um, our interior narrative and then bring healing to it, to diagnose the cut tendons and do what's needed to reattach them and to heal them. So uh, let me read this parable to you, this very familiar parable. And here's what I want you to think about as you're listening to this parable. How would you describe the self-narrative of the younger son? As you listen, what do you think this self-narrative is of the older son? What schemas might you see operating in each one of them? Um, and then think of this story as prescriptive. And, and what I mean by that is, in what ways is Jesus prescribing agency for both of these sons as an intervention in their stories? Another way of saying that is how is agency releasing them both from their captivity or how is it an invitation to release them both from their captivity? So those are some questions to think about as I read this very familiar parable of Jesus. The parable of the lost son, Luke 15, 11 through 32. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. This younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine, famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, 
At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, and now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. But meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother's back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you've told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead, and he's come back to life. He's lost, but now he's found. All right, <clears throat> let's go back to the questions that I, that I asked you to think about as I was reading that. So the first questions are, well, how would you describe the self-narrative of the younger and the older son, and what kind of schemas do you think might be operating in each one of them? And then the second set of questions that I asked you to think about is thinking of the story as a prescriptive story, meaning in what ways is Jesus prescribing agency for both sons as an intervention in their stories? And how can that agency release them from their captivity? So let's dive in. First, let's take on the younger son. So we can see definite uh, threads of superiority in his self-narrative, what is he overcompensating for with that superiority? Hmm. We can also see in his story uh, the narrative change. Um, at the beginning, others don't matter. Uh, they're beneath him. But as the story continues and he experiences the consequences of his lifestyle, that shifts to self-loathing. Self now his narrative is embedded with self-loathing. Uh, it looks like he has an, es an escaping, addictive um, sort of personality that's, that some of the maladaptive schemas working in him involve uh, addictive behaviors. He doesn't have any self-discipline. He's impetuous. He's offensive. But again, his, his, that's, that's at the beginning. His narrative then shifts to him being humble. And eventually, eventually, his narrative shifts to being real. He, he gets to a place where he, um, where he starts to be real about who he is, right? Now, let's think about the older son. What kind of self-narrative does he have? Well, we can see unrelenting standards in the older son. Like, he's been doing things the right way for a long time, and, and damn it. I deserve more because of that. His standards are similar to the standards that Jesus used to poke at in the Pharisees and teachers of the law, people that continuously pointed back to how they were doing it right, right? And Jesus had hard words for people who uh, were using their own perception of their righteousness as a foundation for their identity. And the reason he poked at those things and, and undermined them is because that foundation is, is a sure way to destruction. 
the older son has it. He's also what you might call admiration seeking, I think. He's self-punitive. People that are have unrelenting standards are also self-punitive. They punish themselves when they don't meet those standards. In this case, he comes off as arrogant um, because he believes that the way he's lived his life is so much higher and better than the way his younger brother has. He's also pessimistic. Um, he could be narcissistic and that narcissism in his world is acceptable. Um, he feels entitled to fairness. Um, so, and that's all again comes out of this, this system of unrelenting standards, I think. And uh, he has a, a kind of a, uh, a mentality about self-sacrifice and how that should win him something. Underneath that is a, a deprivational mindset, I think. Um, someone who feels like, in general, on an everyday basis, he's been deprived of what he should have. So he has a deprivational self-narrative. So um, what... What is then the agency that Jesus prescribes for both of these sons as an intervention into these stories? Um, I think this is fascinating to look at this story through that lens. In what ways is Jesus inviting both the younger son and the older son to exercise agency as a way of um, uh, undermining their destructive self-narratives and finding healing. Well, uh, let's just go through some possibilities here. So uh, people who feel lost, in this case, the younger son clearly, uh, by the time that he's ready to come home, has recognized how lost he is. So, so for people who feel lost, this is what Jesus is saying. If you feel lost, no matter what precipitated you feeling lost in the first place, you can come home again. You can come home again. If you will turn and start walking toward home again, you will be welcomed at home. Now, in Middle Eastern culture, a younger son who had done this to his father, who essentially said, you're dead to me. In fact, you're so dead to me, I just want all of the possessions and money I would get as if you were dead, because I don't ever want to be in relationship with you again. So you're dead to me. Give me what I would have gotten if you had actually been dead. What a disrespectful thing the younger son had done. And in Middle Eastern culture, this would be worthy and perfectly normal for the father to murder his son, to kill him for this level of disrespect. So when the younger son turns to head toward home and he um, crests a hill and sees his home for the first time and his father sees him cresting the hill and begins to run toward him, this younger son must have assumed the cultural narrative that his father was coming to kill him, that he was so angry that he was running toward him to attack him. It would have been a normal assumption for the younger son. Instead, the father, we know from the parable, what is, what is the father thinking as he's running? What is, what is guiding his, his, his pace as he runs toward his younger son? It says in verse 20, he was filled with love and compassion. And that's why he ran to his son, filled with love and compassion. That's why he ran to his son. So one way to translate this, as far as an invitation into our own agency, is to remember that Jesus is always going to be waiting on the porch for us. And the reason he's waiting is to catch a glimpse of us exercising our agency and returning home to him. And when he sees us exercising that kind of agency, he runs filled with kindness and love toward us, not judgment. Instead, 
when we, when he's finally able to touch us again, he just wants to clothe us and, and to, and to clothe over the self-loathing that we've had to put a rich robe on us in a ring and to hold a feast, to celebrate, to communicate the depth of his celebration that you and I decided to take him up on his invitation and come home again. Remember, the invitation to your agency is that you can always come home again because he's waiting right there on the porch until you crest the hill. Another invitation into agency, now think about this. You don't have to go all the way back home. You can take your baby steps or even a few adult steps and your good father will meet you on your way. You don't have to come all the way back from whatever um, exile you've given yourself. You just have to start walking or even run a little bit if you want. But be sure of this, that when you exercise that agency, his response is to meet you before you get all the way back. You don't have to go all the way back. Another invitation to agency, this one's particularly for the older son. Um, older son, you can have what I have already. It's already yours. Will you? It's interesting that the older son says, you never gave me a goat. But the father uh, says, well, you could have asked for a goat at any time and I would have given it to you freely. Really what the father is saying is, son, you need to ask. Ask for the goat if you want to have a feast with your friends. I'm not just going to force a goat on you. <laughs> That's what he's trying to say. He's saying, older son, exercise your agency. Ask for what I have because I've given you all I have. It's already accessible into you and already accessible to you. Um, another invitation buried in this story is to lean into our loving relationships. Instead of shutting them out, if we turn and move toward our loving relationships, then restoration is on the way. And once again, that restoration will meet us on the way. Um, another invitation to agency from this parable, um, the option is open to you, older son. You can just keep working or you can come to the party. You can stay uh, swirling in your disgust and in your resentment, or you can come to the party. It's up to you. Would you rather live your life celebrating at the party? or live your life descending into the cesspool of resentment that you've just expressed. It's up to you. If you will take me up on my invitation, you can enjoy the party. Um, the father finally doesn't pursue the younger son to drag him back. He's not teaching learned helplessness to the younger son. He's giving him the space to um, exercise his own feet. So it's, it's a very dignity giving what the, what the father does in this scene. Um, because he could have pursued him and just said, I love you. You're my son. I'm going to drag you back. But in this story, the father is exhibiting what kingdom of God lo love looks like. And that kind of love does not disrespect the agency of the other. Instead, what that kind of love does is invite, um, even if it's just a baby step, invite the return. So here we have kind of a slowed down um, immersion into the parable of the lost son. And what kind of agency the father in the story is inviting his sons to take. And this kind of agency will lead to the restoration of their relationship and to their healing. 
how can agency release both of these sons in the story from their captivity? Well, it will release them from their captivity because they'll be co-participants in the restoration of the relationship. And that's what Jesus is looking for. So here's what I would invite you to do as we close off here. Um, I will post on the SoundCloud episode page for this episode, um, a, uh, the, the 18 schemas I just read today. You can find them there. Um, and uh, you can print it off if you want and simply take a look at all of the 18 schemas in their full descriptions and then simply ask Jesus for a starting place. Which of these schemas is a good starting place for you? Just circle that one. And then ask Jesus for a first step of agency. Something that he might ask you to do to take a step to address that schema so that he can meet you along the way. So just simply ask for a first step of agency after you've circled that schema. Just try that as a baby step. And if you want to keep going through the other schemas that seem to apply to you and do the same thing each time, circle it, ask Jesus for a first step of agency, get some sense of clarity around that, and then do it. Do something to take a step in the direction that he shows you. If you want to keep moving through all of the schemas that apply to you, you might find yourself more whole on the other side of this. You might find yourself healed. All right, gang, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast uh, right now from ricklawrence.com. This is season seven, episode five. That's the episode you'll want to look look for on, on SoundCloud to find that document on schemas. And you can subscribe to this podcast on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you again 